I know what you're thinking. You've got all of these like hats and shirts with the old logo. What are you going to do with it, right? <laughs> Maybe we should have like a swag swap day where you bring it in and we like put the new logo on your old hats. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to turn the live stream back on. Everybody's going to get angry. It's going to be really great. I'm going to make fun of them. And we're going to get into God's word together. You can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And we have four weeks left in the book of Romans. Four weeks left in the book of Romans. This is like the finale, the fireworks finale going off. And the title of the sermon, uh, we'll put that up on the screen, is that. And you're like, what? What is that? I'll explain it in a second, but that's the title of the sermon. Last week, we talked about uh, following the government. We have to respect the government and keep the law, right? Follow the rules. But the Apostle Paul immediately wants to balance what he said because the last thing he wants, he used to be a Pharisee. He used to be a master of following the rules, right? And an enforcer of the rules. The last thing he wants is to turn all these Christians into rule book Christians. He does not want that. He does not want them to turn into just going through the motions. And uh, I read a quote once that really stuck with me. It's by a guy named David Bruscus. And he said this, The Bible isn't a book about a thousand principles to live by. It's a book about one person to live for. It's not about following the rules. It's not about rule. And listen, young people, high schoolers, middle schoolers, if you're growing up in the church and you're like, all these rules, everything I can't do. Listen, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about learning to live for one person who loves you like no one ever has, who deserves your full allegiance throughout life. And today we're seeing how Love and law go together. Do you see it up there? The word love, and then do you see inside of it the word law? It's like they're combined, and we have to combine them in the Christian life. How do Christians share the love of Christ and live the law of Christ? God wants us to fill our homes, our church, our job, our world with both the love and the law of Christ. And we're going to learn today how we can do that. Let's say a prayer and then we'll get into the word together. Thank you, Father, for this exciting day. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to everything that you have for us. And show us today how your law and your love go together. Show us how we can be Christians who fulfill the law and live out the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we are in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8, and it says this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Jot this down, number one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, he just came out of saying, pay your taxes, follow your government. Now he's like, love your neighbor. You see how he like jerked the wheel a little bit? He's talking about like civil obedience and then he just is like, I gotta, I gotta get to love here because I don't want these people to get the wrong idea. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's very interesting here. You don't ordinarily put the word love with the word law. Am I right? It says here, owe nothing to anyone except love. 
It means it is something you owe to those around you. It's like a debt. The word love doesn't typically get combined with the word debt, right? Like a husband doesn't go to his wife Friday night, hey, date night, let's go. I've got a debt to pay off. I'm in great love debt to you, and if we go out tonight, maybe I can chip away at the mountain of debt that I, like who puts debt and love together? And, and who puts law and love together, right? Well, I made a legally binding promise before a judge, and therefore I am contractually, legally obligated to stay with you. <laughs> like, law, yeah. Law is part of, like, love and getting married and all that, but it's just, it doesn't feel loving, right, to combine love with a law or to, or to say love is like a debt, but it is a debt. It's something you do owe, which means it's not just when you feel like loving your neighbor. And there are laws involved, which means how you treat people, it does have to be in a lawful way, right? I, uh, I read a story that in Canada, Chase Bank wanted to get out of credit cards up there. Did you hear this? And so they told all these Chase credit card companies, hey, we're getting out, of, so pay off your debt so that we don't have to you know, come after you. For, so all these customers paid off their debt, but then at the final minute, they decided that if anyone had any credit card debt left, they would just wipe it out and forgive it. And so the people who were procrastinators were like, glory, <laughs> Chase Bank just forgave my debt. I have no more, $5,000, $10,000 just wiped out. Now here's the thing. When it comes to love, the assumption here is that it your obligation to love those around you never stops. You will never have it paid off, which means when you wake up tomorrow, there's going to be so much that you can do to love other people. And if you're honest with yourself, there are times where I do this, where I say to myself, man, like with all the people in my life and all they're going through, I've got a lot to learn to figure out how to help meet their needs, how to know what they're going through to help them in a meaningful way so that our relationship gets stronger. I, it's like, do you ever get it all done? Right? You can't. Uh, it's like saying I mowed my lawn. Well, it'll be there again in a week, right? It's never done. And so understand that the obligation to love your neighbor as yourself is a perpetual command that you can never finish. You can't be like, I'm done with him. You know, I, I, I took care of that. You can't have that mindset that the debt is always owed. What does it mean to love other people? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love is the way that you behave toward others in your life. It's a very relational word. Uh, it's not just an emotional word, although love generates powerful emotions. It doesn't matter how you feel. Love is how you treat people. Um, and... It's the way you behave toward those closest in your life and even people who are strangers. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the Bible makes it clear who your neighbor is, so jot this down. Neighbor includes everyone alive. Everyone alive. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Remember that story of the Good Samaritan? Somebody was, you know, a Jewish person was just dying on the side of the road, and the teachers and the scribes and all these holy people walked right by. And who was it that stopped and helped? 
the Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. The whole point of the Good Samaritan, if you, don't, if you don't get this, you don't get the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not just about you be the one to give the, you know, the homeless person a $5 bill. The whole point is Samaritans and Jews hated each other's guts. They didn't go to each other's places. They didn't worship in the same place. They hated each other. So for a Samaritan to stop is the, is the worst enemy. The Samaritan should have kicked the guy over the cliff and ended it, right? I mean, I mean, hundreds of years of enmity between these people groups. So for the Samaritan to stop and to cross over a racial barrier, an ethnic barrier, a cultural barrier, right, was a huge, huge no-no back then. The whole point of the Good Samaritan is this. The person who is on the very bottom of the bottom of your list of people who you feel like loving is the person that you should call your neighbor. That's the whole point. I don't like that. It basically means you don't get a list. Who must I love? Everyone. Who would be the first person on your list? The easiest person in the world to love. Don't say your cat, all right? <laughs> Don't give me this whole, oh, my pet understands me. I, you know, some of you talk to your pets. I know this. Uh, and and it's, it's a little weird. I'm just going to say that. And it's fine if you have a nurturing relationship with your pet. But let's not go down this whole my pet is my best friend in life thing, all right? I hope there's a human at the top of your list of people who you like loving. Maybe your cat can be third. But there you go. You've got somebody who's like easiest to love. Like you could serve this person and listen to them and talk to them all day long. You would be stranded on a desert island with this person and you wouldn't even be afraid of that, right? And then who would be at the bottom of the bottom of the very bottom of your list? Who would be the person who you would put last on the list of people you would want to be stranded on a desert island with? Who would be the basement bottom, you know, I mean, to get serious for a second, the person who has hurt you the most in life or disappointed you the most in life, the person who, if you had your chance, you could describe how oh, this person is, is, is a, a monster, right? Hey, that person, too, deserves your love. That person is included when it says, love your neighbor as yourself. When the Apostle Paul says, love your neighbor, I mean, in this whole book, he just talked about honoring the government and showing respect. He's, he's got an evil emperor who thinks he's a god. Do I have to love and respect him? Yep. Back in Israel, those rulers killed the Messiah. Do I have to love and respect them? Yep. So if you have a list of people who you have convinced yourself that you're done loving them or they don't deserve your love, you've got to tear that list up. You've got to forgive and be kind. I'm not saying you in any way have to place yourself in harm's way. But I'm saying you have to have a loving posture toward that person, whatever that means biblically. And a good way to do it is to go back in 1 Corinthians 4 and put your name in there. Am I, Ryan, patient and kind toward this person? Did I not envy or boast? Or Just put your name in there. That's a good checklist to see how you're doing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor includes everyone alive, just so we're clear. Jot this down. Because love fulfills the law of God. It says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Has fulfilled the law. And it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law. This doesn't make sense at all. Because, you know, what you're probably thinking is like, so if I'm just nice to someone that I've fulfilled all of the laws, well, it's the heart of love that actually leads you to avoiding the bad and doing the good. God's love is the way to keep God's law. How? Well, it says here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. 
So what you do to the person is what you would have others do to you. This is often called the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of phrased in a different way. But whatever treatment you expect from other people is the treatment you give to them. And that prevents you from having a double standard where you expect everyone to do A through Z for you. But then when it comes to them, you're like, I'll do A and B. Like, like you, you give love to people in a way that's very different from the love you expect from people. The Bible wants us to avoid that. If we do love, it, help, it enables us to keep God's law. Uh, how would you like to be talked to? How would you feel if someone did this, said this? Do you have a double standard that you're embracing? I can guarantee you this. If there are people that you have said in your own heart that 1 Corinthians 13 no longer applies to that relationship in your life, that's a stronghold of sin. And you need to repent of that immediately. The question is not, do I have to love that person? The question is, how? How? Uh, but if you have cut someone off completely, right, and, and you think it's over, then that's a stronghold of sin. Neighbor includes everyone alive. And love fulfills the law of God. Sometimes the truth people get so wound up about the truth. You know, truth, they're breaking God's law so much. That's it. I'm done with them. And then here we have this warning. Love fulfills the law. Last thing God wants is for us to be judges walking around with verdicts, you know, sentencing people out of our lives. Love is at the heart of the law. Why is that? Well, Jesus said when he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus said the law was given that you can love God better. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love, the law was given that you might love other people better. So God doesn't want you to live a life where you're like, there, I did it. All of it. I kept all the rules. Where's the love? Where's the heart for God? That's what the law was all about. Love fulfills the law of God. And the love of Christ is greater than the love that the world is preaching today. We have to understand that the world will use the word love a lot today, but it doesn't use the word to describe the same love talked about in the Bible. Today, loving someone usually means uh, applauding everything in their life and never telling them that something that they've done is wrong. Uh, right? Never. You would never do that. Uh, and they, the highest form of love today the world would teach us is just helping someone just, you know, understand what their life is all about so that they can reach the highest level of fulfillment and just staying out of their way. And we would disagree with that definition of love. Love today in our world has changed into what I would call consensual narcissism. Consensual narcissism. I have a narcissistic view of myself, and I expect you to help me feed that. And the good news is, if you have a narcissistic view of yourself, I'll help you feed that. Consensual narcissism. And that love is not as great as the love of Christ. Why? Because if we're all consumed with selfish love, we're going to devour each other, which is what's happening. The Bible calls us to treat people the same, whether they love us or hate us, whether they agree with us or disagree with us. And we imitate our founder, Jesus Christ, who told people the truth and died for them on the cross. He gave them the truth and he gave them the love. Jesus, who washed Judas's feet, who prayed for the soldiers who crucified him, and who laid his life down 
so that criminals and rebels like us could be rightfully related to a holy God. Christ came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And this is the love that we bring to the world. Full of grace, 100%. Full of truth, 100%. Number one, love your neighbor as yourself. Number two, let God's law protect and purify your love. Let God's law protect and purify your love. It says here in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. So he lists commandments 7, 6, 8, 10. These are the 10 commandments from Exodus 20. God literally inscribed laws on stone tablets with his own finger and handed them to Moses. So there is an absolute truth. There is a moral God who has laws. And whether we like it or not or agree with it or not, we are all under God's legal authority. He's our judge. We can't change that. We can't pick up a packet of crayons and write our own morality for the world. We're not allowed to generate our own laws. God is the one who creates the laws. And what we see here is that God's laws are his revealed standards of belief and behavior. And his laws are fused with his love. He gave it in a loving manner to protect us from sin and to protect us from each other. Here's the truth. The truth is that love and law are married in the nature of God. And therefore, they must be married in our faith, and we must never divorce them in any relationship. Let God's law protect and purify your love. Jot this down. God's law protects those we love. God's law protects those we love from ourselves and from others. So this is very basic. If you break a law, you're usually going to hurt someone. And there are some laws listed here, laws of God and laws of the state, typically. If you break laws and violate God's commands, you're typically going to hurt people. So adultery, you're going to hurt the person that you pledged to marry. You're also going to hurt society uh, because you're going to bring perhaps multiple families into disarray. So adultery um, often was illegal. It's still illegal in God's court of law. Um, but if you commit adultery, you are, you're damaging a person spiritually and bodily, right? You're taking advantage of someone, someone's body in a way that breaks God's law. And then it goes on to say murder. Well, murder is obviously taking someone's life, stealing their life from them, and, and it breaks a law. Stealing, well, that's taking someone's things. And coveting is desiring to take someone's things and harboring an attitude toward them that's not very loving. These all are ways to break God's law and often laws in society. So God's laws protect those we love from having their bodies harmed or taken advantage of, their possessions, and it's, it's obvious when we look around our world how laws protect us. For example, our children. It's really good that kidnapping is illegal. Right? I think we'd all agree that that protects our loved ones. I'm, I'm glad that in the world we live in, it's illegal to drive on the sidewalk, because otherwise my children would have to watch out for cars that just decide to drive on the sidewalk. Um, I'm glad for that. One time I was out for a run on the CalSAG Trail, 
and the trail's about, I don't know, have you ever been out there? It's like this wide. And as I was running, a car zipped right past me on my left. A car, a whole car. And I was like, whoa, that was a car. This person at Lake Catherine made a wrong turn and accidentally turned onto the path, the running path, and didn't let that, that stop them. They just kept going, thinking, I don't know, maybe there would be an exit. So that, I don't know how this happened, but they found a place to turn around. Then they came back at me, and I was like, you go, you go. I'll, I'll get off the trail. But I'm very fortunate that that is actually illegal, and so I usually don't ever have to worry about that. Laws protect those we love, right? We know this in sports. Someone was once complaining about a call in a game. I forget where I heard this, but someone was complaining about a call in a game, you know, this, one, this rule. And someone else said this, don't complain. The rules protect the game. And I was like, I never thought of it that way, but it's true. Don't complain. The rules protect the game. The rules protect the game. What, what would it be like if, if the refs were like, uh, I'll allow it all the time, right? We get most upset when a rule is broken and it ruins the game. Uh, but the rules protect the game. We don't like it when the rules go against us or we get caught breaking them. But we have to all agree that the rules don't ruin the game, right? The rules don't ruin. Oh, now we're going to lose. Well, the rule didn't ruin the game. The rule protected the game from total chaos, from total anarchy. The rules protect the game. And that's true for life. God's rules protect your relationships with people you love. That's how love and law go together. Adultery, nope. Murder, obviously. Theft, duh. Coveting, well, this is a heart problem now. Let's talk about that a little bit. So God's law protects those we love. Jot this down. God's law purifies our relationships. Purifies our relationships. So coveting is obviously a heart problem. You can't, you can't tell a person they're doing it, which is why the indictment is inside. But if you're looking at another person and it's their stuff you want, you're going to use them. You're going to take advantage of them. We see this all the time, right? When you need someone from something or when someone needs something from you, they're coveting something that you have, uh, right? And, and that, that can be anything. It could be a vote. It can be a car. It can be a, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. They, they, and it changes the way they relate to you because you see them as a means to get something you want. You know what this is like, right? We all know what it's like to be used. And that's an unloving thing. And it comes from a covetous heart. But there are other ways that these vices can embed in our hearts too. The Bible talks about adultery, uh, right? Jesus said if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So there's a heart form of adultery where maybe you don't come right out and tell this person your intentions, but you are using them in an unloving manner. And all sin starts in the inside in your imagination. Okay, when, you, when you hear about someone who leaves his family and runs off with someone else, look, that didn't happen that day. It's not like some, you know, attractive woman was like, I'm here to ruin your family. Are you in? There was a long process in the imagination where, where all of this unloving stuff started to camp in there, and the fantasies and the thoughts and the lies and the, right, all of that. And so we have to make sure that we see how the law really goes back to the heart of how we're loving other people in God. Covetousness is a problem in the heart. Adultery starts in the heart. Murder starts in the heart. What did Jesus say? What did he, what did he say about murder, right? If, you, if, you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean to treat both of them the same. We're not trying to get into, like, pre-crime here, like, what? You're angry? You're going down for murder. 
You know, what? You lusted after another woman? That's it. I have grounds for divorce. Don't couple those things as if they're the same actual sins. The whole point is it starts in the heart. So if you're not protecting your heart, if your heart's been invaded, if your imagination is filthy, you're going to sin. That's where it starts. So God's law purifies our relationships of sins that begin in the secret places of the heart. And sin will always damage the mind, the body, the heart, the soul. There's no such thing as a sinning just on the outside. Whenever you see instances of unloving behavior toward people, verbally, physically, financially, emotionally, it started in the heart. In Ephesians 4.15, it says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Do you see how those just go together? Speaking the truth in love, growing up to maturity. Hey, do you want healthier, more mature relationships in your home with your spouse or your kids? Do you want our church to be a community where we are growing on to maturity? It starts when we speak the truth in love. And we are growing up in every way into he who is the head, into Christ. Now we have to be careful here because I just said that God's law purifies our relationships. God's, love, God's law protects those we love. And then it says here in the word, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, love does no wrong, which means if you're aiming to love those in your life, you're going to keep the laws of God, because that's what it means to, lo to love them and to not harm them. And if you do harm them, you're going to break God's law. But here's one thing I would just make sure that we understand. We have to be careful. Love does often cause pain and conflict. Um, in Proverbs 27, 6, we'll put that on the screen, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So an enemy is the one who will just flatter you and never tell you anything that hurts your feelings. But a friend will tell you the truth. So, so listen, the world will often say, you hurt my feelings, therefore you're not loving me. How could you hurt my feelings like that? What we would say is, look, God's word is a sword that divides, divides the deepest you could ever be pierced. And so when you have to tell someone the truth, yes, it will create tremendous pain, but these are the wounds of a friend. So, so be careful. What I'm saying is love does no harm, but don't take that as meaning there's never a time to actually have a conversation with someone or to, to act in a way that really is going to cause conflict or hurt somebody, because in the name of the truth, you might need to do that. And Jesus modeled that for us. So number one, love your neighbor as yourself. That includes everyone, and it fulfills the law of God. Number two, let God's law protect and purify your love. God's law protects those we love and purifies our relationships. Number three, jot this down, wake up and get dressed. Wake up and get dressed. So he switches to more of a, a picture here, an imagery. It says in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this is a fun image here. It says, you know the time, meaning you understand where we are in salvation history. 
Salvation is near, it's in fact at hand. And this refers to the return of Christ. Christ is just about back. And you're like, well, how could the church say that for 2,000 years straight? It's because we're supposed to live as if the clock has expired and we're in, we're in extra time. And, and at any minute, any, any minute, he's going to return. That urgency couldn't be stronger. And, and here it says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come. There's an awareness of where you are in God's plan of the ages. And it describes this as if you're in a battle, a fight. So, so here you are in a war, and it says you know the time. It's, it's dark, and dawn is coming. The champion is almost back on the field of battle. And then it says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, that's hilarious. Because what are you doing? What are you doing? You're asleep. The Bible says, wake up. This picture is really, really awesome. I want to actually act this out for a second here. I, 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 I need a volunteer. Where's Justin? I asked Justin at the beginning. Justin, come on up here. Let's give Justin a big round of applause. Justin's going to help me with this. Come on up, Justin. Hurry up. You're going to stand over here. And uh, I need one other volunteer, one other person that I'm going to ask here. You know what? Leroy, would you be willing to come up here on stage and give me a hand this morning? Let's give Leroy a big round of applause. <laughs> Leroy, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on up and helping me this morning. Now, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to help me show what the Bible's saying. Leroy, you have been cast this morning to play the part of the Prince of Darkness. Congratulations. <laughs> Everyone say, ooh. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right, so put on your mean face. Good job. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm going to give you a chance in just a second to actually have a bare-knuckle brawl with Justin here. But first, we've got to get him ready for battle. So, Jared, come on up here. Let's get Justin suited up for battle. Justin, I've got a few things that I want you to put on here. First of all, I'm going to get you dressed in this, uh, this robe. Um, here you go. This little pajama action here. And go ahead and tie it up in the front. Go ahead, tie it up in the front. No, it's, it's right about here. There you go. There you go. Go ahead and tie it. We're going to get you nice and comfortable, all right? And then we've got this pillow here. We're going to set this down. Now, can you just lay down there? Go ahead, lay down, and, and then go to sleep. All right, Leroy, on the count of three, I'm going to let you take your best shot at this guy. <laughs> You're still smiling. You're doing a really bad impression of the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> but it's because this is laughable, all right? If, if this was really about to happen, uh, and, and this, your buddy here was about to get mauled by the Prince of Darkness, what would you say to him? Wake up. Say it louder. Wake up. All right, good. Now, you can wake up and get up. You look like a fool. Let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you very much. All right. You don't want to wear that any longer? All right, that's cool. You can take it off. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, now we've got to get the symbolism clear, because that was fun, but I don't want you to lose what I was just symbolizing for you, okay? So here's what I'm symbolizing for you. Awake is a portrait of spiritual alertness and maturity. Awake. If you're awake, you are spiritually alert and mature. You know the times. You know what's coming. You're alert, and that alertness is prompting you to be field of battle ready. Okay, so you're alert, 
and you're mature. If you're asleep, that's a portrait of worldliness and defeat. You're a Christian, but you are incredibly worldly and you're defeated in battle. Uh, you're also dull to the things of God. You're, you're just asleep. You're, you're not even awake to the reality of what's going on. And here's the thing. Being awake is a choice Christians must make every day. Jot this down. Cast off sinful patterns of relating. It says here, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So it is primarily directed to believers. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Those are the pajamas. Cast off the works of darkness. That, that's what's making you look like a fool. And put on the armor of light. I like that. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And then there's a list here of things that we are to avoid, to cast off sinful patterns of relating. There's sexual sin, orgies, sexual immorality, sensuality. That can include anything. Uh, lustful behavior. Any way you're satisfying your sexual lust in an ungodly way, privately or publicly. Cast off. Cast off the sin. And then it says drunkenness. So this highlights substance abuse. Problems with substances. Cast off those issues. And then it says quarreling and jealousy. Any relational strife that's immature and childish, cast it off. It's your pajamas. It's making you look like a fool on the field of battle. Cast off sinful patterns of relating. Now, this does imply that you're saved. And I would just say this. The word here for salvation, salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, implies that you're a Christian who's been saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, if you have never been saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritually you are asleep and the prince of darkness can do whatever he wants with you. You're dead to God. You've never woken up even once. The alarm clock keeps going off and you just keep hitting snooze. And I would just say this, Christ is almost back. The day is at hand. The night is far gone. And maybe this is all you needed to hear this morning. Don't wait another second to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to become a saved person. You've heard all more. It's not about the laws. God's not going to be like, wow, you're so well behaved. You get to come to heaven. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. Are you a saved person? If not, you're snoring while a roaring lion is coming for you. And it's time to wake up and get saved today by casting off sinful patterns of relating. The basic components of this includes confession. You're confessing your sin and repenting. You're saying sorry to God. You're saying sorry to the people that your sins hurt. Confession and repentance. Have you done that? Do you need to do that? And then it says, make no provision for the flesh. It says in the last verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's cool. It's as if he is the armor. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That means Satan doesn't even get one little... One little bit, one little craving, one little beachhead, right? When Satan comes in your front door, what should he have waiting for you? Like a turret should be waiting for him. Here's a picture of a World War II turret. And when he comes in, don't be like, all right, I'll let you land on this part of my life. Go ahead, set up camp. You can't let him have even an inch or he'll, he'll take it a mile. 
Imagine if you had mice in your kitchen and you're like, well, I'll just let them have this one drawer. But I expect you to stay in this one drawer. Would that work out? Trying to tell a mouse to stay in one drawer. Good luck. Imagine if you go to the beach and you're like, well, I'll just feed this one seagull. <laughs> but just this once. What does he do? He goes and gets all his friends on the whole beach. And then you're surrounded like birds the movie, right? The Alfred Hitchcock horror story. And you're like, where did they all come from? I only fed one. You can't just feed one seagull. You can't just give a mouse one drawer in your kitchen. And whenever you have just one area of sin in your life, or just one relationship that grieves God, you can't be like, well, it's not like I'm an axe murderer or anything. So I've just got this one thing. That's all he needs. Give him no beachhead. Cast off the sinful patterns of relating. Try that. Go to work tomorrow and, and, you know, get dressed mostly, but then, you know, just wear, you know, one slipper. You know, one, one, one of your pajama slippers to work. People be like, why are you wearing a slipper? Well, I, I didn't want to get fully dressed. <laughs> You'd look like a fool, right? And when you have sin that you're, you're putting it on every day, and this is a daily command to the Christian, you don't wake up wearing the armor of God. You've got to put it on. Jot this down. Put on the armor of God. Cast off sinful patterns of relating. So you're throwing the sins in the hamper. That's a portrait of confession. You're getting out of bed. You're getting out of your jammies. That's a portrait of maturity. And you're putting on the armor of God. That's a portrait of protection, security. If casting off sinful patterns would be kind of don't the don'ts, putting on your spiritual armor would be do the do's. Don't the don'ts. Do the do's out of love. Putting on the armor of light means putting on godly behaviors and beliefs. In Ephesians 6.13, the same author tells us about this armor of light. Here's what he says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I was kind of a Dungeons and Dragons geek when I was a kid and I found a, a picture of a pretty awesome warrior clothed in white. Check this out. This is a picture of like an amazing warrior an angelic gladiator. And the Bible describes this as being the way you're supposed to look spiritually walking out the door every morning. All right? Now, Leroy, if you had to square off against that, you wouldn't be laughing anymore, would you? Oh, you'd run faster than you've ever run before if that came up on stage. Oh, you'd stay and fight. Oh, it would be a bloodbath. The point is this, that's supposed to be, you none of this snoozing in your jammies. And remember, this all ties to primarily how you're relating to other people. Hey, this is an awesome thought. We are in the winning army. Our champion is almost back. The battle is raging all around us. Are you in your pajamas? Are you even awake? Or are you in the armor of light? Examine your relationships right now. How are you loving other people, especially those toward the bottom of your list? 
We have a choice to wake up and get dressed spiritually every day. You can put it on today. You can put the armor of light on tomorrow. You can choose to be loving today. You can choose to be loving tomorrow. You can choose to resist temptation today. You can choose to resist temptation tomorrow. And hey, maybe you've been in the faith for a long time. And, and honestly, for whatever reason, in a relationship in your life, you have jumped back into your spiritual pajamas. And you are being a big baby. And maybe it's time to cast off the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor befitting a child of God and to start loving again. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time. One final thought here. I like this clock management imagery. It says, you know the time. The hour has come. My son's in soccer right now, and uh, in his first game, the team was losing, and the coach, who has quite a loud voice, from the sideline said, we are losing! Hurry up! Because they were just sauntering around the field. They were taking their time. We need goals! And that hustled them up. This is what coaches do, clock management. I was Jared's basketball coach once, and we were up by like eight points, and there was like one minute, or one minute left. And my team kept fast breaking it down and turning the ball over. And I said, we are winning. Why are you turning the ball over? Can you hear a coach saying this? I'm a nice coach, okay. I don't always yell. But when we're winning and the clock is almost up, stop turning the ball over, right? Stop it. Look, Coach Paul here is looking into your life and saying, we are winning. Stop turning the ball over. Can you hear him saying that? And find the area in your life, find the relationships in your life where you've got to get out of those spiritual pajamas, where you've got to stop turning the ball over, and you've got to act like the trumpet could sound right now. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this challenging and encouraging message about love and law in your word. It's not about keeping all the rules. We could never keep enough rules to please you. It's not about offering people sentimental support without your word. That's very selfish and harmful. Lord, help us to, just like Jesus, be full of grace and full of truth. Uh, and help us in our own lives to be mature, to be guarded. Especially those people who are hard to love right now, help us to keep a soft heart and a Christ-like focus. Maybe that means we have to have the courage to tell them the truth. Maybe that means we have to have the humility to hear the truth told to us. But I just pray that there would be loving relationships healed and repaired and blossoming. Lord, maybe that means there's areas of sin where we're taking advantage of you and other people. And I just pray that we would cast those immature, worldly habits off every day. Every day, may we clothe ourselves in the armor of light. And Jesus, may you be present in power to protect us. And Lord, perhaps there are some here today who need to surrender themselves to you. For the first time, they need to come awake spiritually and admit their guilt and ask you to save them. May they pray that right now. May they pray, Jesus, save me. Save me from all of my sin. Wake me up spiritually. Give them the assurance that you will never leave them or forsake them. Fill us with this hope and this joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.